Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the podcast of The Porch Church. We hope today's message really blesses you and encourages you in your spiritual journey. If you have questions or want more information on our church, please visit www.theporchchurch.tv. That's fun, right? A little bit. I think worship is just as fun. And uh, I was dancing a little bit too hard over there. I started losing my breath, so I had to calm down. But whew, I'm glad you're all here. Glad we're having some fun. I'm going to sit down today. I uh, got some feedback after last week that apparently maybe I'm intimidating when I'm like walking around up there yelling at you. So uh, we're just going to like have a conversation for uh, this series. We'll see if that uh, makes, makes any of this come more alive. But we are in a series that we're calling Party uh, because we think, or I think, or Jesus thinks, uh, that as we read through Scripture, when he's talking about God, when he's talking about the kingdom of heaven, there's like all these stories that he's like, it's like God's like this guy who's throwing a great banquet, right? Translation party. Or in these stories that we're going to look at in Luke chapter 15, he always says, hey, there's rejoicing in heaven. And I don't know what rejoicing looks like in your life. I don't know if you post on Facebook like, I'm just rejoicing right now. But I think it looks an awful lot like a party. I think it looks an awful lot like having a good time. And so Jesus talks about all of these situations where he was not only in parties when he was on earth, right? People accuse him of being a drunkard and a glutton because he's hanging around with people who are partying all of the time. So there's a real strong precedent in Scripture that when we gather together, what the church should be about, what the kingdom of God is about, should look more like a party and less like, I don't know, church. Like that's just what we're supposed to be. This table gets it. That's okay. So we're going to have some fun talking in this series about what does it look like for the kingdom of God to be on earth just as it is in heaven and for that kingdom to look like a God who throws lavish parties that looks like a God who rejoices and celebrates, that looks like a church who does all of these things. And as I've kind of mentioned, we're going to look at Luke chapter 15. And this is, these are three parables that you know, maybe you even know them by heart, right? It's the lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. And we're going to look at these over the next four weeks and we're going to talk about how these things play in to the kind of party that God throws. I was doing some research, and uh, one guy that I, I mentioned talks about this section of Scripture, and he says, these are reasons to party in the kingdom of heaven. I love that description. I love what that's going to be. But we're going to jump in. Luke chapter 15. If you want to follow along, we'll be on page 492. Page 492 if you've got a Bible uh, there on your table. Uh, if there's not enough, slip your hand up. Our ushers would love to give you a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, just keep this. It's our gift to you. Uh, but we're just going to walk through the first part of Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. So verse 1, here we go. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Okay, we got to pause already, right? That's supercharged, even though it may not seem like it, right? So the scene is probably something similar to this, right? There's a party going on. They were at a gathering of some type. And uh, how do I say this nicely, right? There are front row people and there, there are back row back row people. Um, so the front row people are these tax collectors, right? They're the people who are leaning in. They're the people who are gathering around Jesus. They're desperate to hear what he has to say. They're, they're leaning in. They're drawing close. If there's an open chair, they're like, hey, is anybody sitting there? I'm coming up front because I want to hear what Jesus has to say. Meanwhile, there's the back row people, which is not you guys. It's like if you were standing like way in the back in the lobby. It's not the back row in here. But they're, the, they're maybe a little bit more uptight, right? They're kind of the ones drinking in the back at the party. They're 
They're not going to be they're not going to be dancing up in the front. They're just kind of observing from the back, just playing it cool, wallflowers, if you will, right? They're just kind of back there hanging out. And uh, and the scripture says though that there's there's some judging going on here, right? There's this back row of people that have a different idea about what's appropriate and inappropriate. These are people who've been following Jesus around. Remember, Jesus is a rabbi. He's a teacher of the law. He's esteemed in a Jewish culture on the same level with other teachers. And so they feel like they have the right to kind of come down on him. He should know better, right? Rabbis, teachers of the law, people who are of a certain position, they don't associate with people of that position. Tax collectors and sinners. Let's break down those terms for just a second, right? Tax collector doesn't just mean IRS, right? Which is kind of where our head goes. Tax collectors, these were traitors. These were people who worked for the Roman Empire, who stole from the people of God and gave it to the Roman Empire. Along the way, they took an exorbitant fee for themselves. These guys were living the high life. And so when you say tax collectors in this room, you mean traitors, swindlers, thieves. These are everybody doesn't like them, which maybe is similar to the IRS, but it's just nuanced, right? There's pieces within there. This word sinners, right? In, in my scripture, at least, it was in quotes. And so they're putting a certain category on this, right? These are the lowest of the low. These are the outcasts. These are people who've come from questionable lifestyles, as we see throughout Jesus's ministry. These are our lepers. These are prostitutes. These are outcasts. These are people who do not belong. And here they are gathered around Jesus. And don't miss the teeniest time tiniest of word that the Pharisees accuse him of. He says they eat with them. He eats with sinners and tax collectors. See, it's one thing to be associated, right? It's one thing to pass by them. It's one thing to be in the same room, but to convey eating in this culture leveled the playing field, right? It's like you're sitting at the same table, and to sit at the same table communicated some kind of acceptance, some kind of condonement for your life, for your behavior, for the actions that you chose to do. It would be like sitting down and and sharing a meal with somebody who you fundamentally disagreed with but at the table was peace and was unity and was acceptance. So in these tiny two verses, there's so much that we miss because we weren't around at the time, but there's a dichotomy in this room. There are specifically two or three groups of people that we identify. There's the the sinners, right? The outcasts, the lowest of the low. There's the tax collectors, which weren't quite outcasts, but they were rich monetarily, but they were hated by everyone. And then there's these Pharisees. There's these teachers of the law. There's these judgmental people muttering in the back and looking down on on Jesus, who is up front. All right, what's Jesus going to do in this story? How's he going to diffuse the tension? How's he going to highlight some spiritual principle? He's going to do his Jesus thing, right? He's going to tell a story. Let's pick it up, verse 3. Then Jesus told them this parable. What's a parable again? It's an earthly story, right? A horizontal story with a vertical or heavenly meaning. So then Jesus told them this this parable, this spiritual tale. He says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Pause. Sheep don't seem to be too divisive, right? It's a sheep. Except in this room with these three groups of people, sheep are very divisive. And let me tell you why. If you were a Pharisee, if you were somebody who was ceremonially clean and holy, you knew that to tend sheep to be a shepherd would have made you unclean. 
right? You're not in line with God. You're not working in the city. You're working out in the wilderness, in the muck, and you would have not been ceremonially clean if you were a shepherd. So when Jesus says to that group of people, to the Pharisees, to the people at the back, suppose you have a hundred sheep, the Pharisees go, uh-uh, that's not happening. I'm not going to own a hundred sheep. I know I'm not supposed to. And if I do own a hundred sheep, somebody else is going to be taking care of them, not me. Then you've got the other side of the room, right? The, the sinners, these are people who probably come from nothing, who have no resources. And when Jesus says to them, imagine you have a hundred sheep, their eyes light up. Wow. I wouldn't know what to do with that much. I wouldn't know how to handle all of those resources. I wouldn't know a hundred sheep. That's incredible. I could, I could never have that much accumulation. I have nothing in my life. I barely have the clothes on my back. I'm getting a free meal here. A hundred sheep is unfathomable to me. And you've got the group in the middle, right? The rich tax collectors who are going, only 100? I call it Tuesday, right? Like, there's nothing going on there. So you've got these three groups of people. And again, Jesus is already driving a wedge between each of the groups. They each have their own separate place. Suppose you have 100 sheep, and there's all these different reactions from wow to uh to so. All of these things happening within this one story. Let's keep reading. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, so one goes away. I wasn't supposed to pick up reading it. I forgot, right? So suppose you lose one. In each of these characteristics, how do you think they react? If the sinners lose one sheep out of a hundred, they're still going, dude, I'm still making bank, right? Like, I had zero when the story started. I got 99 now. That's more than I've got now. The tax collectors are going, one, who cares? I don't care about one sheep. I've got plenty of sheep, I've got plenty of money, I've got plenty of resources. I don't need to concern myself with one little sheep. In other words, the value isn't there in the story. Pharisees probably would say, if I lose one sheep, man, good riddance. I'm trying to get rid of them anyway, right? Liquidate the whole flock, don't want to move on. So there's three different reactions as well. Now we can keep reading verse 4. Jesus doesn't give them the answer or the opportunity to choose their answer. He tells them what happens. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Jesus says, doesn't, like, there's not even an option here. If you're a shepherd, for those of you who don't know, which again, he's not talking to a crowd of shepherds. He's saying, there's no question here. If you're a shepherd entrusted to catch sheep, you leave the 99 somewhere safe. You leave them in an open pasture and you pursue the lost sheep. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, this answer is so obvious There's not even another choice here. Doesn't he leave the 99 and go after the one? Again, he's not talking to shepherds, so this might have been a revelation for those people in the room. And maybe you can do math like me, but I don't know how I feel about leaving 99 to go after one, right? Like a wolf could come. Somebody else could attack. A bear could attack. Anything else could happen, and you could lose 100% of 100 sheep instead of just losing one sheep. Jesus is trying to draw them to a point, and again, this isn't your first time interacting with the text, right? You understand where it's going. You understand what he's communicating. But again, in these three groups of people, this would have been revolutionary. This would have been insightful. This would have been something that wasn't natural to them. This would have been a story that perhaps they hadn't heard or hadn't heard in this way, which again is why Jesus tells the the same version of the same story three different times, because this wasn't just kind of woven into the fabric as it is when you come to church, right? This story is probably somewhat familiar with you, even if this is maybe your first time here. 
But for Jesus' listeners, this would have been mind-boggling for them. They wouldn't have been able to process through it. They wouldn't have been able to walk through it as easily as you and I are. But nonetheless, the takeaway that we've derived for 2,000 years of Christianity that still reigns true is that to God, in God's economy, in the kingdom of heaven, there's something about the one sheep that raises its value above what it should be considered, and it's now more valuable than even the 99. Right, this is math in God's kingdom, that the lost one, the one who is not yet here, the one who is far away, that he is worth pursuing, she is worth chasing after, that they are worth finding, even over the 99 that we already have safe and secure and in the pasture. Right? It kind of is maybe surreal to us today, right? We kind of intuitively understand that because I told you we're talking about the lost sheep and you go, yeah, 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 hundred loses one and he pursues the one. But at the time, this would have been somewhat revolutionary. And God's math in this situation rings clear that there's something more valuable about that one than what's on the surface. There's something more going on than simply the math between 99 sheep and the one sheep that's missing. Step back from the story with me. Let's step into our church. Let's put this in context of last week's conversation, right? Last week we had a big conversation about what we feel like God's called us to do to reach the Denver metro area by making disciples who plant disciples and churches who plant churches. And part of the reason comes from this story. Part of the reason comes from the fact that the people who are here are important. They are valuable. They are loved. They're a part of the family. They belong here. And yet there's something unquantifiable about the one who is is lost, about the one who is not yet here, about the one who needs to know the love of God, who needs a family to belong to. And there's something that must motivate us as a family of God to leave the safety and security of the open pasture to go and seek after the one who was lost. Because they're invited to God's party. They're invited into heaven. There's an invitation with their name on it, and they simply don't know. They're lost. They're somewhere else. Seeking one lost sheep, one lost person in this story, in Jesus' economy, in the economy of the kingdom of heaven is worth it. Let's see if we can parse together why. Pick up the story with me. Verse 5. And when he finds it, when he finds that lost sheep, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and he says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. Don't miss this, that there is an incredible amount of joy as Jesus is telling the story for the shepherd who finds the lost sheep. Right? I don't know about you, but if I'm traipsing through the wilderness looking for one sheep, while I've got 99 sheep safe at home, I'm probably doing some muttering. Stupid sheep, right? Stick around, catch up, stay close. You used to be in the pasture, now you're not in the pasture. What's wrong with you, stupid sheep? Jesus says that's not the case. He says that the shepherd finds it and joyfully endures a burden for that sheep, right? Because maybe it's legs broken. Maybe it's stuck in a ravine. Maybe it's tired because it hasn't eaten and it's been panicked all day. And he says he joyfully puts it on his shoulders, I don't know that I've joyfully put anything on my shoulders, right? Like not even my kids at day at the park, right? Put me up on your shoulders. No, it's hot. You're heavy. Stop. <laughs> joyfully, he puts the sheep on his shoulders and he carries it back to the rest of the flock. Then when he gets back to town, he says, hey, rejoice with me. I didn't even tell you this yet, but I, I lost a sheep and then I found him. Which if we were hanging out having a conversation, we might just go, oh, okay, cool, good. That's, that's great. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Rejoice 
with me. Let's throw a party. Let's have a celebration. Let's turn this into something bigger than it appears at face value because what was lost has now been found. This is the economy within the kingdom of God. This is the metric that he introduces. First of all, that the one is more valuable and that there is joy to be found in pursuing the one who is lost versus the 99 who are found and safe in pasture. Verse 7, of course, Jesus is going to bring it all home as he connects all the dots. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Step out of the story, step out of the metaphor, step back into that room. You remember the room that we're describing, right? There's sinners and tax collectors pressed up and circled around Jesus, right? They're all in the front row, and then you've got these righteous people standing at the back. You've got the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, those muttering to themselves. He eats and gathers with sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus says, this story is about this room right now. You can almost imagine that Jesus breaks eye contact with the people around the front row and he stares down somebody in the back row and he says, there's more rejoicing over one sinner than over 99 righteous people. By the way, talking about you. You want to know why Jesus gets crucified? It's because he tells mean stories. Right? Like he's calling people out here. There's nothing lost in the room. Everybody knows very, very, very clearly what Jesus is saying. Heaven is rejoicing. There's a party going on because of the people who are gathered here, who are receiving grace and truth and love and acceptance because they were lost. They were far from God. They've repented. They've come near to God through Jesus' sacrifice. If we fast forward a couple chapters, and there's more rejoicing over people coming to terms with God, their Father, through Jesus Christ, having communion with the Holy Spirit, than there is over 99 people who've already got it all figured out. Then over everybody at the back of the room in the back of the party who's judging and muttering, who's got the rules and the regulations and the law and everything figured out, Jesus says, you're missing it. There's a party going on. There's a rejoicing in heaven because lost people, lost sheep are being found and you're too self-righteous to be involved in that conversation. Instead, you're righteous. There's no need for repentance. Which is a fascinating point, right? Put on your theological thinking caps with me. Who are the 99 who do not need to repent? Would you raise your hand if you're 99 who do not need to repent in this room? Right? Because it's not, it's not a real category, right? We know this. We know that we're all sinners, that we all have shortcomings, places that we've fallen short, that we're all in need of grace, right? At one point, we were all the one lost sheep, amen? I was. Some days I still am. We were all among this category of lost sheep who were found and were brought back into the fold. And Jesus says there's rejoicing over everybody, everybody in that category. Everybody who is lost and becomes found. There's a party going on. The angels are rejoicing. All of heaven and all of earth hinges on the story of salvation, of people being reunited with God. That's what the entire history of the Bible is testifying to. And there's a party going on unless you're too self righteous to recognize that you need to repent, unless you're too self-righteous to recognize that you're one of the lost sheep, right, which is somewhat problematic. So let's go back to the question that I asked you, and you had hopefully a small conversation around your table. So in this story, who are we? 
Who are we in the midst of this parable? What is a story from 2,000 years ago communicating to us today as the family and believers of God? What role do we play in this story? What do you think? Interactive time. This is where you talk. I'm tired. What do you think? Who are we in the story? I can't hear anybody. you got to shut the air conditioning's on. Lost sheep. Absolutely. At some point, we're the lost sheep. Totally, fundamentally true. There, there may be somebody in this room who's going, I'm still the lost sheep. I'm still not quite sure where I stand with Jesus. If so, let's start a conversation there. At some point, we were all lost, but then something happens. Hopefully, it's happened in your life. It's happened in my life. Then we get found. So I'll ask the same question. Who are we in the story? You may be the lost sheep. If you can own that, great. Let's have a conversation. We'll talk more about that here in a little bit. That may be you. If so, God loves you. Jesus loves you. He wants you to be a part of his flock, a part of his family. He wants to joyfully put you on his shoulders and rejoice as you come into the kingdom of heaven. If you feel like you're lost this morning, there is good news for you in this story. What other categories are there? Who are you in the story if you may not be the lost sheep at this exact moment in your life? Found sheep, right? Except there's a problem there. Because if we're the found sheep, then, then Jesus leaves us. Everybody okay with that? The shepherd leaves the 99 sheep, right? So, so we're lost sheep. And then we get found, which is really, really good because we belong to a family, we belong to a flock, and, and we belong to the family of God. And, and yeah, I think that most of us would go, yeah, I, I think that's where, I think we're in the 99 sheep, except what's the point of the 99 sheep? 99 self-righteous people who do not need to repent. How many of you would like to be in that category? I don't. So what's going on in this story? Who are we in this story? What's Jesus' opening line? Imagine who has 100 sheep. You. Imagine that you have 100 sheep. Sheep, shepherd is, of course, this giant metaphor, right? Between the kings of ancient Israel carried all the way through the New Testament, right? We can see this sheep, shepherd metaphor all the time, right? Think about, uh, uh, think about Jesus, right? We talked about this at Easter. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Perfect, right? Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, then do you remember after, uh, after Jesus dies and he comes back and, and Peter betrays him, right, three times before the rooster crows and Jesus is reinstating Peter. Do you remember this conversation? Jesus says, hey, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, of course I love you. And then what's Jesus say? Anybody remember? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Of course, Lord, you know that I love you. Then feed my sheep. Take care of. One of the words changes from feed my sheep to shepherd my sheep. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, and Peter, if you love me, then you're going to be a shepherd of sheep also. Sheep, of course, being the metaphor for souls, for people, right? We all understand that. But fundamentally, at the heartbeat of this story, there's a transformation that happens where lost sheep become found, which is really, really good. We all agree with that, but then at some point, the story has to change from us just being found and being a piece of sheep in the pasture where we just kind of hang out and eat and follow the shepherd all day to the fact that Jesus wants to transform us from lost sheep into shepherds who are about finding lost sheep. 
After all, we're to follow after Jesus, and if Jesus is the good shepherd, then we ought to be good shepherds as well. We ought to be good shepherds and stewards of this whole spiritual journey of people. And if you had 100 sheep, if you had 100 people that you were accountable for before God, if you had 100 souls, individuals that you were responsible for, and one of them was lost... Would you not leave everybody who is safe and uh, an attending church and involved in a meaningful family relationship and knew and loved Jesus, would you not step away from them in pursuit of the one person that perhaps you were accountable for, responsible to, who was lost and far from God? And in that situation, then wouldn't you rejoice when they made the choice to come and to belong to a piece of the family? But you also wouldn't be content with them just simply following. You would want to equip and change and transform them to become a shepherd in their own right. This is part of the story that I shared last week that I feel a deep sense of responsibility from God that there are sheep who belong to God that live in the Denver metro area and that we're responsible for them. We're we're the shepherds that are to seek after sheep who are far away from God. And not only are we supposed to find them, right, save them, bring them into a saving knowledge with Jesus, but discipleship, I think fundamentally from this story, is all about lost sheep who become found and then become transformed into shepherds who are also seeking after lost sheep to transform them into shepherds. And once we have shepherds, we find sheep. This story is so much bigger than just maybe how we've interpreted it before. And that's why I ask, who are we in the story? I came across a a quote a few weeks ago from a friend of mine. His name's Matt Leroy. He's a, a pastor in Chapel here in North Carolina, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And here's a quote, and it just rung true to me in this conversation. It says, if you aren't a missionary, you may need one. What do you think about that? If you aren't a missionary, if you aren't on mission, then you might need one. Let, let's translate it into our conversation, right? If you, um, if you aren't a shepherd, you, you might be a lost sheep. Does that connect with this story? If you're not a shepherd, if you're not one who is actively seeking out the lost sheep who belong to a flock greater than yourself, right? Because remember, shepherds took care often of other people's sheep. We hear this in David's story. So the sheep maybe don't belong to us. The sheep ultimately belong to God. And yet we're the shepherd. We're the caretaker. We're the one who's charged with keeping them safe. And if you're not a shepherd in charge of nurturing and leading souls into a relationship with God, then there's a high probability that at some point you're a lost sheep. If Jesus is the good shepherd and he says to us, hey, go and do what I do, go and do likewise. If his last words to us are go into all nations, baptizing them, teaching them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, then there's something within this relationship where we're found as lost sheep, but Jesus wants to fundamentally transform us into shepherds, into caretakers, into people who are going after the lost sheep in this world. And sheep must have the heart of the shepherd, which means as we follow Jesus, we become transformed and reimagined, and then we go out and do likewise. So again, I'd ask the question, who are you in the story? Who are we in the story? Where are you at 
in that journey. You may, be, you may be a lost sheep today. If so, you're in a really good place. We'd love to have a conversation with you about Jesus, about salvation, about redemption, about what it means to be found. You may feel lost in, in parts of your life and going, yeah, I just, I just don't know whether I'm lost in all of my life or part of my life. I don't quite know how to have this conversation. Maybe you're like, I thought, I still think maybe I'm a part of the 99. Maybe that's a bad thing and I didn't think it was, but I've kind of become really comfortable with safe pasture. I've kind of become really comfortable with coming to church and going to church and volunteering sometimes and, and I'm kind of just safe and comfortable in the pasture. I think that's a problem because I think that in the story, what Jesus is saying is that you're the shepherd. If you're the shepherd, then who are your hundred sheep? Who are the 100 people, souls, things that you're responsible to? Right? If you're married or a part of a family or if you have children, I'd start there. Maybe you have relationships, friendships at work that you're the only Christian in the group and you know you're the only Christian in the group and maybe the Holy Spirit or God just is nudging you ever so slightly and saying, there are lost sheep all around you. Some of them even have your name on them. That they belong to me and I'm looking for a shepherd who's willing to go after the one lost sheep. If I could push you even a little bit further as you reflect on that, maybe you're solidly there going, yeah, I, I think I am a shepherd, I can identify some people, then, then, then let me just point out to you the point of the story, which is who is your one lost sheep? Who's the one person who's missing from the family of God? Who's the one person who is distant and far away and even as we're speaking, the Holy Spirit might be putting a name or a person or a story on your heart and you're just going, I know they're lost. I know I feel a sense of personal responsibility for them, not to judge them, not to be righteous over them, but because I love them and, and I want them to be invited to the party. I want to rejoice with them. I want them to get baptized and I want to be in the mix as they make that decision. I want to celebrate dead things coming to life. I want to celebrate lost things being found. And maybe the Holy Spirit is just laying the burden of a name on you right now. I would say that if you take nothing else from this entire message, it would be to answer that question prayerfully, honestly, and openly. Who is the one in my life? Who's the one lost sheep? And then what might you need to joyfully set out that they might be found? I'm going to invite the band to, to come up. We're going to sing one more song. It's a song about lost sheep and lost things. It talks about the reckless love of God and how he pursues us. Maybe this is a song for you today as you reflect on God's love for you. Or maybe just, maybe there's something that's kind of shook loose within you. And maybe you can name and articulate that one person. If so, uh, we're going to recreate the movie Up a little bit this morning. Does that sound like fun? I think it sounds like fun. So there's a huge table out there with balloons, and, and here's your challenge. I want you to own the fact that you're a shepherd, that God has given you sheep to take care of, and I want you to identify your one lost sheep. Then I want you to go take a balloon and a Sharpie, and I want you to write their name on the balloon. As you do that, I want you to begin praying. Praying for them. Praying for yourself. Praying that God would take you along a spiritual journey where perhaps you're one who can joyfully find someone who is lost. 
And then as we get done with that, writing their name and praying, I would encourage you to go outside and to offer that as a prayer to God. Knowing in your heart that there's a responsibility within that, that as the balloon goes out and gets lost, as it were, that it's up to somebody to find it. Up to somebody to go after it and pursue it. And so as you think about and pursue the lost people in your life, who's the one person that maybe you feel a sense of spiritual responsibility for, that you know that the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, you're a shepherd in their life. You may not be the shepherd, you may not be the only shepherd, but you are a shepherd in their life. And it's time to take some personal responsibility in pursuing them with the reckless, never-ending, never-stopping love of God. This may be really uncomfortable for you, and I'm super okay with that. This may be something that you want to involve your kids in. You can go pick them up, bring them out, just respect the process of people around you. This may be something that you're completely uncomfortable with, and I'm okay with that too. But, but here's what I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, right? That church is not a place that we go to, it's a thing that we are. And it's the church's responsibility to seek out and find those people who are lost because that's what Jesus calls us to do. And if Jesus is asking us to shepherd his sheep, then who are the sheep that you're responsible for? And if specifically, when Jesus tells a story, he goes after the one that's lost, then we should be able to identify that one in our life, to prayerfully go about a process whereby we invite God to change us to be somebody who could reach out to them and that we prayerfully release them to God to give us the opportunity to invite them to come to the party to come to be a part of the family of God, to rejoice with the angels in heaven as lost things become found. Let's pray together. I just want to give you a moment where I'm not talking at you. What's the Holy Spirit saying to you? Is there a name that rises immediately up to the surface or do you have to push a little bit harder? Maybe you feel like, I'm the one lost. My name needs to be on somebody's balloon. Maybe you write your own name. Maybe it's a loved one. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's an old friend. Maybe you're going, I don't feel equipped to be a shepherd. I can barely manage my own spiritual life. How am I supposed to lead somebody else? Listen, there's a process by which God develops us to lead spiritually other people by developing ourselves in the midst of reaching out. You are equipped. You have what it takes. The question is, are you willing? Do you believe that God has called you to be a shepherd of his sheep? And if so, do you have one that's lost? Heavenly Father, God, would you equip us to recognize ourselves within this story? God, if we are lost, would you give us the openness to be found? God, if we're comfortable being in the pasture, God, would you grow us up and mature us and transform us into the shepherd, which is what you've called us to be, a spiritual caretaker, one who leads the way. And God, in that process, would you help us to seek out and find the one who is lost, the one that you've put under our care, but who is distant and far from you. And Jesus, we know that you're more passionate about saving them than we'll ever be. And so, God, would you equip us to partner with you, to partner with your spirit, to seek out those lost ones that you are after. 
God, as we prayerfully offer them to you in this moment together, as we go out and get to celebrate a little bit with a fun little practical way, God, I ask and pray that you would make this real. That while it would be fun, that while it would be enjoyable, God, that it would also be challenging. That it would also be real and revolutionary and revealing about our hearts and about the work that you want to do in us and through us as we reach out into the people in our lives for the sake of the gospel. God, your love for us is good news. We rejoice with the angels over our stories, our salvations, and God, we want to find those people who need to be invited to the party, who already have an invitation and they're just stuck on the outside. God, would you help us to seek out and to find those who are lost? We pray all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and all God's people agreed together and said,